So today's reading is uh, from the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 13, which is on page 1174. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Phil. I don't know if you've ever um, come across this person. I'm sure you have. If you're at a dinner party somewhere, how very middle class of me, dinner party, or maybe you're in the school playground, maybe you're down the pub, you're at a restaurant, you're in the street, you're standing next to someone, and you meet that person. And that person may be a very interesting person. They may be a person that is wonderful to speak to. They have great stories. But they do not know the art of conversation. They know the art of a one-way conversation, and therefore they are always interrupting you. I wonder if you've come across that person, and they will talk about themselves, and they will talk about their holidays, and they will talk about their, where they work and what they've done, and suddenly you might get to that point in the conversation where they suddenly say, enough about me, let's hear about you. Whereabouts did you go on holiday this year? And you think, great, this is my opportunity. And so you start and you say, well, we took our family down to the south coast of Cornwall. And, and then before you can continue anymore, they jump in again and go, fantastic, I love it down in Cornwall. Let me tell you about the time when, blah, blah, blah. And before you've even got going, um, you've been interrupted. Maybe something along those lines of what's on the screen there. I'm sorry, did the middle of my sentence interrupt the beginning of yours? the person that interrupts you there. If you've got children at all, especially if you've got young children, perhaps under the age of five, you'll know what it is to be interrupted all the time. In fact, we went through a period where we said if we had friends around, adults around, we didn't end up finishing, let alone an adult conversation, an adult sentence when you've got little ones around you that always want your attention, they're always interrupting. And for those of you that are currently in that position, it does get better, honestly. There will come a time when you can have a full adult conversation again. You'll have other problems to deal with later on, but don't don't worry about that one. 
Why am I talking about this? It's because this passage that we've seen this morning starts with an interruption, which is really unusual in the Bible. Usually we have a good narrative that runs straight through and someone's talking or there's a story and it runs through and it's easy to read. Here, in the very first verse, we get an interruption. And this is a strange interruption because it's not someone else interrupting and butting in on the conversation, but it's Paul who's writing this letter to the Ephesians, essentially interrupting himself mid-sentence. Do you notice that? In the first verse, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then it hangs at that point, and the, the Bible we've got, the NIV translation, quite handily sticks a, sticks a dash in there, and he goes on to say something else, and then he picks up his train of thought again in verse 14, which we didn't actually read. So, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. He's about to pray for the Ephesians here, and he starts it in verse 1, but then he gets distracted by something that he's about to say, and he carries on later on in verse 14 with this fantastic prayer for the Ephesians, which Jez gets to preach on um, next week. So in this first verse, he's saying, for this reason. For what reason? Well, if we look back at the previous chapter, if you were here last week, Um, and you listened um, to Richard's sermon, you'll see that the Gentiles, the people that were non-Jews, were being brought together in Christ. There were phrases like, no longer being aliens, no longer being foreigners. They weren't seen as the outsiders anymore, but they were being brought into God's family. And that Christ was bringing down walls of hostility that used to be between Jew and Gentile. And together they were being built into a dwelling, into a building in which God lived by the Spirit. If you weren't here last week or you haven't heard uh, the sermon from last week, please do download the podcast. It's really worth listening to. And you even get a mention of zombies in there, which you don't often get at All Souls. So it's definitely worth a listen to for that reason. So he's talking about those reasons. That's why he's writing to the um, Ephesians. That's why he's about to pray for them. He calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. We need to remember what the context is of this letter here. Paul is in chains. He's in prison, perhaps under house arrest, or perhaps in prison himself, probably um, in Rome. And he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's writing to the Christians in Ephesus, the church there, and probably some of the churches in the surrounding areas. They wouldn't have been large, magnificent cathedral churches. They would probably have been house churches, small numbers of people gathering together. And Paul is writing to them from his prison, either cell or the house he was in at that time. But he doesn't call himself a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Caesar. He calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He sees himself there because of the gospel that he's been preaching, that Christ is in control of everything. It's not what Rome has done to him. It's not what others have done to him. It's because of his faith in Christ that he sees himself there in prison. And thirdly there, for the sake of you Gentiles, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... The reason he's ended up in this state of being a prisoner is because of his preaching, because of what he's been saying about Jesus. He had trials, he was imprisoned in other areas, he was in Jerusalem, and he was eventually brought um, to Rome to plead before Caesar. He had a bold, he had an uncompromising declaration of the Gentile cause back in Acts 
he is allowed to address a crowd which had become quite unruly, and they calm down as he tells his story of how he get, came to meet, meet Christ on that road to Damascus. But then as soon as he gets to the verse which says, and I was sent out to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the crowd rises up again. They didn't like that. He was in prison because of this. But he doesn't want the Ephesians to be discouraged because of this. He's in prison essentially because of the message that he's preaching about the Gentiles. But just before he comes back to the prayer again, He says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Maybe that's why he interrupts himself in here. He realizes he's telling them he's a prisoner and it's essentially because of the gospel to the Gentiles that he's been preaching. He doesn't want to discourage them for that because of him being their leader, the apostle, the great church planter that he was, was in chains. He didn't want to discourage them because of that. So he digresses at this point and then comes back to his prayer for them later on. This is a passage without a narrative in there. There isn't someone like David who's defeating giants like Goliath. There's nobody crossing passages of Red Sea. There's nobody walking on the water in this. But there's a great, rich amount of teaching and theology and doctrine that Paul's about to cram into these 12 or 13 verses. And Richard likened this whole book last week to to being like a rich fruitcake that's got lots of good stuff in it, loads in it, but you don't really want to eat a fruitcake all at once. You want to take a nice slice of it in one go and take a small portion and allow yourself to savour it. And that's hopefully what we're going to do this morning. Let's just find some of those little nuggets within that fruitcake. That should mean that this is a short sermon. We'll see how we go. Let's go on to verse um, 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly in the previous passage that we, uh, we talked about last week, chapter 2. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to men in other generations as it has been revealed by the Spirit. He's talking here of a mystery. Now, what do we think of when we hear the word mystery in English? Now, this um, image might perhaps give you a clue of what I would think of when I think of a mystery. I've become an age now where a nice Friday or Saturday night is sitting down in front of the TV with my good wife and watching a murder mystery on TV. Whether that be... She might not, like she might want to be out somewhere, but tough. Um, Nothing I like better than sitting down in front of a Hercule Poirot or a Morse or a Lewis or a Miss Marple or you name it. Someone's been killed, basically, haven't they? I'm not quite sure why we enjoy sitting down watching people get murdered all the time. But there's usually a mystery involved. The beginning of it... We don't know what's happened. We perhaps see a body, we see a shadowy figure, and you have to work out the whodunit. It's a mystery. It's something we have to piece together and solve, and maybe or maybe not we get to the end of the program, and have we worked it out? Maybe. I don't know. But at the end, we find out what the resolution of the mystery is. It's something unknown which we need to work out for ourselves, perhaps something dark or something puzzling. 
But this isn't what Paul's referring to when he talks about a mystery. It's a Greek word, mysterion. It's a truth which is sometimes a counterintuitive truth. It's been hidden from human knowledge, but it's now been disclosed by revelation. God's brought it into the light. It's essentially kind of an open secret, really. And this is the mystery which Paul's talking about. He often alludes to God's grace and the gospel, the good news of Jesus, as being likened to this kind of a mystery. It's something that's counterintuitive. You know, the law that was given in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, essentially, and those on the, on the end of it as well, were not really ever referred to as a mystery because they were quite intuitive. They kind of made sense. Do this, don't do that. And then you'll be accepted by God. That's the way to come into relationship with him. But the gospel of Jesus is often referred to in more mysterious terms. It's something that's maybe counterintuitive. It doesn't necessarily make sense. God came down to earth in the form of man and then was killed. He lost everything in order to gain everything. And us... As people who are far from God, the Bible calls us sinful, we're away from God because of the way uh, our attitudes and the way that we act, are made right with God through his sacrifice. It's not really intuitive in the same way that the law was. And if we try and live by the law, we live by our works. We try and think, if I'm a better person, if I speak the right words, if I do the right actions, then that's okay. God will accept me because of that. It's almost impossible to do. We'll get crushed under the weight of that. It's this gospel, the mystery that we need to live under now, putting everything on Christ and allowing him to have done everything for us. Just a belief in him and following him is what we need to do, this mystery. So what's the mystery that he's actually talking about in this passage in verse 4? The mystery of Christ. He's talking, he's going on to talk about what he spoke about in chapter 2, which Richard spoke to us last week. The Jews and the Gentiles, God's ancient people through the Old Testament and the Gentiles who are now brought together through union with Christ. This was a great mystery, even though it had been alluded to in the Old Testament. It says in verse 5, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed to the, by the Spirit. But it had been alluded to in the Old Testament that Israel would be a light to the nations, the Messiah would receive the nations as his inheritance. Abraham was promised that all nations of the earth would be blessed through him. But the thing that wasn't revealed was the radical nature of the Jews and the Gentiles being brought together. It was perhaps thought that the Gentiles would maybe have to become Jewish or have to follow the Jewish way or the law in order to come into this inheritance. But Paul's saying, no, this is the great mystery. You're actually going to be come together. You know, it's, the, the, it's, the, it's like somebody who is a guest of, of somebody else. Perhaps, perhaps you go to a sporting event or you go to something that's very um, high class. I was speaking to someone here the other day, and they said they were at 10 Downing Street. The person I was speaking to would be the least likely person I would have thought to have been in 10 Downing Street, but there you go, he was there. But he was only there because he was a guest of somebody else. 
If he'd have walked up to the door or even the gate of Downing Street and knocked on it and asked to come in, probably wouldn't have gone too far, especially as he told me that there was a guy with a machine gun standing there at the gate. Wouldn't have got very far. But he was the guest of someone else, which meant that he could come in to 10 Downing Street. But if he went back the next week and tried it again, probably wouldn't have got in. And it's a bit like that in the way that it was seen between the Jews and the Gentiles. It seemed perhaps that the Gentiles would be able to come into relationship just because they were kind of guests of the Jewish people and be brought alongside them. But Paul's saying, that's not what it's like. It's like you've got free access now as Gentiles. We all come together to be one body with Christ. We don't need somebody else to have a guest pass. We can come to God equally together. And he uses three words here um, in this uh, next sentence to talk about this in detail, about what this mystery and what the the Gentiles coming together with the Jews are like. And there are three words that, um, that have the word kind of together or with. This mystery is that through the Gospels, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. They're heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. The heirs together, they were going to get an inheritance. They're going to be part of God's eternal kingdom. It's like someone moving in down the end of your road and asking you to join their family and you finding out that they have a massive inheritance and being part of that family suddenly You're party to this inheritance. You get to inherit this great treasure. It was the same way here for the Gentiles. And the great thing about this inheritance, it's something that in Peter, he talks about inheritance that we have through Christ, which can never fade, never spoil, never perish. I always joke with my mother-in-law whenever she spends any money on anything, that that's my inheritance getting smaller and smaller. Perhaps I shouldn't have my wife's inheritance, probably actually, as it's my mother-in-law. But um, there's our inheritance that we have in Christ, being part of his kingdom to come, the treasures, the richness of his grace, is something that's not going to perish or spoil or diminish on earth in any way. The second thing, they're members together of the same body. Last week there was an analogy, there was a picture um, of the church being together, a building So all stones together lined up with Christ as the cornerstone, the stone that lines everything up in the building. And now um, Paul uses a a word to say we're going to be members together of one body. In Corinthians, there's a longer passage which talks about us being the body of Christ together. We're all part of one body. You don't ever see a hand or a foot that's actually independent of the body working by itself. It's always joined together together. And he talks about the church here as being one body, all part of one together. And thirdly, the promises, the sharers together of the same promises, all the promises that had been made to God's people in the past, to Abraham's family. That family had now been widened to include the church and we're able to have these promises for ourselves. So what relevance does this have to us today? We grew up in an age where it's a bit of a given, the Jew and the Gentile thing, that's nice to look back on, but from when we're born, we're all 
able to come into God's presence. Because of Jesus, we now live in a time where this is a given. This is something that we know about already. So what can we apply from this passage? Well, let's have a look at what he says the church is about. In verse 10. His intent, that's God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have to remember what he's talking about when he's talking about the church here. He's not talking about the building of the church. We have a lovely church building here, but he's not talking about that church. He's not necessarily talking about the individual local church either, although that is part of the church. He's talking about the church universal, the church of all believers in Christ together here. So what's the church for? To make known the manifold wisdom of God. This word manifold, we don't use it very often, but it means kind of multifaceted brilliant, kind of variegated. It was the word used of Joseph's um, coat in the Old Testament, the coat of many colours. So much detail in it, so wonderful. It's kind of often applied to a a diamond that that is sparkling in its brilliance. Every time you move it at just a touch, you see something new and delightful in it. It's multifaceted. And this is the wisdom of God that he's talking about here. He's talking about the church being the witness of this wisdom to the heavenly realms, not just to those on earth, but to those in the heavens, the angels and the demons as well, are looking down and they are seeing the church and the church should therefore be a reflection of God's wisdom. It's sometimes said when we look at the church in general, it's sometimes said, well, actually, don't, don't look at the church, just look at Jesus that's what you want to focus on. Don't worry about the church. Look at Jesus if you want to know what the gospel's all about. And in one sense, that's absolutely true. But in another sense, it's very clear that the church is there for a reason, and it's there to declare the wisdom of God to those around, not just those around here on earth, but to those in the heavens as well. And when we say the church, that's us. That's our responsibility to do that. The church is a working model of the kingdom to come. We should be reflecting God's wisdom. So as we wrap up, what are some of the ways that we can do that? How can we reflect God's wisdom? How should we be as church? Firstly, our attitude to others, those outside of the church. This isn't just our church, and we're talking perhaps about our local church here. We should be looking out to those outside. It's sometimes easy to think, oh, we've got the church here just as we want it. I like it this way. I like perhaps the way we do the songs or the number of people that are here, the way we do things. That's cool. Let's keep that to ourselves and hold it tight. But that's not what the church is about. It's about looking outward. It's about looking at those around us. It's about our compassion and how we react to those in the world. It's about our reaction to those that are having to leave their own countries because of war or persecution and find homes elsewhere. How do we, as the church, react to that? How do we reflect God's wisdom in our attitudes? 
Secondly, our relationships within the church. Whether we've got things in common with those around us or whether we haven't got things in common in an earthly sense. Whether we speak the same language, do we dress the same? We're one with those in Christ, not just here in All Souls at St. Margaret's, but across the world. And how do we speak? How do we think? How do we act? How do we pray for those within the body of Christ? What's the practical care that we provide for these people that are such a diverse community? How do we laugh? How do we weep? How do we rejoice with each other? Are we portraying God's wisdom as the body of Christ? Thirdly, how do we disagree with each other? From time going back to the beginning of the church, there's always been disagreements about something. But how do we disagree with each other? Do we do it in a way that is loving, that is building up, that is encouraging, not in a way that's breaking down? One of our life groups that we've got running that Richard's going to be doing is talking about when Christians disagree, there are certain things we don't necessarily always see eye to eye on. And he's going to be looking at a few of those issues. But more importantly, how do we address those as the body of Christ and how do we learn to disagree and live with that tension in a loving way that reflects God's wisdom? And finally, how do we worship together? How do we glorify God together? How do we celebrate his goodness. You know, that's the something that makes us different from just a club or an organisation that we might belong to. Our worship of God coming together, looking at something above and greater than ourselves. And he sums up at the end in verse 12, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. We're no longer aliens, we're no longer foreigners as we looked at last week, but we can come into God's presence with such freedom and confidence. And you know, as we come to communion, which we're going to do now, and we're going to share this together, an ultimate expression maybe of the mystery of the gospel, a sacrifice that was made by God of his own son that then allows us to come into his presence with this freedom and this confidence. Let's remember as we come together, we share as the body of Christ in this meal together, the bread and the wine that we share. Let's ask God to help us as individuals, but more importantly as his body, as the church, to really reflect his brilliance, reflect his wisdom, reflect the wonderful characteristics of God in our attitudes to others, to outsiders, our relationships with each other, and our worship together. Let's pray.